Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. I'm Chris Fitch. Our discussion today is all about vulnerability and GDPR. Published this morning, new guidance from the Money Advice Liaison Group and the Money Advice Trust calls for every financial services firm in the UK to take a second look at how they collect and use data about customer vulnerability. Whether collecting special category data about a health condition, information about a financial problem, or a customer disclosure of a life event, the guidance asks firms to practically audit how well they are complying with data protection law while aligning with the FCA's vulnerability guidance, while taking customer vulnerability into account, and at the very same time, also keeping things practically simple for frontline staff. Now, doing one of these well is difficult enough, but as we're here, doing all four can be a hard balance to strike, and scoring less than four out of four isn't really an option. So today we're asking, just how well are firms doing on the vulnerability data challenge? What is exactly that firms find most difficult about the overlap between GDPR and vulnerability? What might a best practice vulnerability data strategy cover and contain? And here comes the big one, do firms really have to use explicit consent? Here to help us tell our GDP articles from our data protection elbows are Nina Best, Data Protection Officer and Data Privacy Counsel at Capital One. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Rob Bell, co-author of the new Money Advice Trust and Money Advice Liaison Group Guidance and founder of RB Compliance. Hi, Rob. Hi. Dan Holloway, a writer, thinker and activist on consumer vulnerability and self-confessed data lover. Hi, Dan. Hello, Chris. Hello there. And data lovers, correct. You're a lover of data. Absolutely. Lovely. And also a lover of data, I'm sure. Paul Smee, chair of the Money Vice Liaison Group and former director general of the Council of Mortgage Lenders. Good morning, Paul. Morning. Morning. Plus, of course, our live audience who will be sharing their own thoughts, experiences and questions uh, using the question box throughout. And just for reasons of fairness and transparency, key themes, I'm sure, for us today, I should declare that I am also a co-author of the guidance alongside Rob Bell and Colin Trend. So an extra incentive there to get critically stuck in this morning. So I want to start with this opener for everybody, and I'm going to give you 60 seconds on this. There's always a lot of discussion about vulnerability and a lot of talk about data protection, but there seems to be a less about the overlap between the two. So therefore, to start out, I want to get your thoughts or even philosophy on what does data protection actually mean when it comes to vulnerability? Nina, can I start with you? Of course you can, Chris. Thank you. Um, I guess data protection in itself is about making sure that everybody's personal data is used properly, um, fairly and legally. And it's also about making sure that any risks of harm from processing data are mitigated appropriately. Now, harm might result because of the more vulnerable nature of the data subject or the more vulnerable um, data that, that they have. So particular care is needed when processing vulnerable customers' personal data to make sure that it's used properly, fairly and lawfully that that's the core of our philosophy mm, that's really really helpful um dan 
What's your philosophy on data protection when it comes to vulnerability? For me, protection implies what some person or institution does to another person um, because they believe it's best for them. Um, so that smacks, I guess the word is, of paternalism. Um, so to that extent, as data subjects, uh, my first response to data protection is to resist it, um, especially if uh, people are vulnerable to some kind of harm. And instead, I'd love to be able to talk about data empowerment. And that would mean that an institution would be able to do a whole suite of things with my data, from openly sharing to walling it up to tailoring, tailoring services based on it, and which of those powers they used would be up to me as data subject. And I think a, a final fear is that financial institutions don't protect my data, rather they use my data to protect themselves. Very interesting. So we could be, should be looking at a Data Empowerment Act, not a Data Protection Act. We'll, we'll, we'll follow that one up. Rob, what, what's, your, what's your take on what data protection means when it comes to vulnerability? I think to, to many, uh, data protection is seen as a barrier when it comes to assisting vulnerable customers kind of a, a hurdle that you need to overcome before recording important information that can be used to help somebody. And I think in a, in a complex world with the non-uniform conversations that uh, firms have with, with customers, the, the apparent need to get consent for, for special category data in particular has been considered to be, to be a barrier. And I think that's how, how many uh, in the industry from a firm perspective see data protection. To me, however, it's, it's not quite like that. I think data protection does work hand in hand with the aims of firms, uh, uh, the aim being, of course, to help customers, um, but you do unfortunately need to dig quite deep to understand this, and it's quite difficult in a real-world scenario uh, to be able to uh, to, to then create the, the protocols that, that work easily for frontline staff. So I guess, what does data protection mean when it comes to vulnerability? For me, I think complexity. Mm, complexity. So we're starting to unpack this and it not being a hurdle, uh, the issue of kind of paternalism, uh, the issue of fairness, it's all about striking this balance. Paul, how do you see things? Can I, first of all, just say in a sentence how pleased I am that MALG is associated with this guidance. It's a hugely important area. It plays into MALG's role as that sort of still point where the creditor and the debtor world meet to discuss items of mutual interest. Um, what, does, uh, what, does it, what does it mean for me? I think two things. Look at the motives. When we ask for, for data, particularly in respect of a vulnerable customer, what are our motives for asking it? How do we ensure that they remain outward looking, not, not inward looking? How do we make sure that information is used for the purposes for which it has been collected uh, and not spilt over into a sort of general reservoir of knowledge of, pri of private information about personal, about personal matters? Mm. Second, uh, I think it's really important that this doesn't just become about process. GDPR can very easily turn into a series of boxes which must be meticulously clicked um, without any thought about the substance behind them. And I hope that this guide will enable people just to drill down into why they're doing stuff and what they're doing uh, and not become obsessed by the box ticking exercise to ensure that something appears on the surface compliant. Hmm. 
So we're getting we're getting here already uh, a sense of uh, being very clear about what our purpose for processing is. And we're seeing four, not, not totally unaligned views, but four views which unpack different shades uh, of, of approach in there. So, uh, Dan, I, I want to turn to you first because I want to make sure that we, we, we kind of centre the consumer uh, within this. The disclosure of a vulnerable situation, a difficulty or a challenge can be a real pivotal moment. It's, it's where human experience is translated into data, into account notes, flags, and possibly positive practical change. But where it's not handled in a fair and transparent way, it can be a moment of risk and concern for customers. So with vulnerability in mind, what's it like being a piece of data? Um, well, I, I don't really have a problem with it as such. Um, in many ways, it's, it's helpful because it's about concrete things about me which, which matter to providing a better service. The issue is rather around how that's used. So for example, my needs in respect of communication might also be used for pricing my credit. There's also a tendency, I think, to connect the need to disclose data uh, somehow with me being problematic. Uh, we see that when we have institutions who have vulnerability teams based in collection departments, but not elsewhere. Um, and this idea that we're only vulnerable in a situation where we might be in difficulty um, really needs tearing out at the root. Um, my vulnerability might be to not being able to access something others take for granted. Um, and I think in that context, it's important to remember that, that these data that I'm expected to disclose in order to gain that service aren't required of others um, in order to access the same essential service. So it's the use of your data. It's the point at which your data is, I'm going to put around this quote, is demanded. And it's it's about this being part of you gaining access to a particular service or a reasonable adjustment or change in process. Is that right? Yes, it's it's the fact that I don't have control over. I might need it for one thing, um, but then there's a worry that it gets a mission creep. Mm. That something data I disclose yeah. for one purpose gets used for multiple purposes. Okay, so can, Rob, can it? With, centering the consumer here and thinking about from Dan's perspective perspective a, a purpose for processing is really really important here absolutely yes and um, firms from a legal perspective need to need to consider exactly what what their purpose is uh, for processing the data and, and have a basis in in both article 6 and article 9 if it's special category data so, and, and Nina, from a, sort of Capital One perspective, when, when you're building your, your, your strategies and your policies around processing data, you're making reference to the GDPR and the DPA 2018, how, how do you keep in mind the consumer as you construct that? I think for us, it's always remembering that from a consumer's perspective, um, and, and Dan touched on this, it's very much about it's really important to know who is using your data and why they are using that data. Back to that incredibly important point of purpose. In mm -hmm. that, there's a right to be informed about how it's being used, even if that's behind the scenes. It, it, the transparency is key in our mm -hmm. mind to be able to make sure that consumers have that choice and control if they know what data is being processed and the reasons why that is being processed. That begins to empower them to be able to have a choice as to whether or not it's retained by the organization or if it is used for particular purposes by that organization. So mm. choice um, and empowerment are incredibly important principles from our perspective.
And how well do you think the industry is doing on 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 that transparency, Nina? Because um, sometimes there's accusations that this is this is hidden away in privacy notices and in in fine print. I think it's very hard um, to talk to other organisations, um, Chris, terms in, in terms of how they're doing it. I think um, what we do need to make sure as as an industry is that it isn't just included within our privacy policies and buried away. That is an important place where information does need to appear because that's a full set and comprehensive place where you can tell um, individuals how their personal data is processed, why it is processed and set out what rights that they might have in relation to that um, that um, processing of personal data. But what's incredibly important is also when disclosures are made, firms need to be thinking about do we need to be making disclosures and telling telling customers at the time they make the disclosure why what um, we are seeking that information and what we intend to do with that information and then also mm. thinking perhaps about following that up as well so afterwards at the time the customer makes the disclosure they might not necessarily be in the best place to be able to consume that so perhaps mm. following that up to make sure that you also remind people where they can find access to this information um, and i think that really that that will begin to help to give full transparency not just I've done my privacy policy, it's in there, tick. Um, mm. But actually you're thinking about the appropriate touch points where you can reiterate what you're doing with that personal data and why you are doing that. Dan, can I, can I turn, turn back to you here? And just in terms of this balance that needs to be struck, because uh, you know, giving people an enormous amount of detail about how their information will be used may be seen by some as, as, as a barrier in itself. So it needs to be simplified. What what were you what are you looking for at that that point of disclosure? There's a there is an inherent problem with with talking about things after I have disclosed because that's too late. I want to, I want to know this information when I'm making the decision whether or not to disclose because that will enable me to make that decision. Mm. Um, and this is one this is one of the problematic issues in this area is. I might not feel happy disclosing something until I already know how that will be processed. Um, once I once I've made that decision, I'm reliant on I'm reliant on human beings not drawing inferences, mm. um, and that feels like a lot of trust that I'm placing. Um, so when we talk about at the point of disclosure, I I worry that that means after I've disclosed rather than the, at the point at which I am deciding whether to make disclosure or not. Mm. And it's it's interesting that that the emotional element for something that's often seen as as, as dry as a DPA 2018 and GDPR is 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 a, is a key driver in that. We'll come back to that in a second, Dan. Paul, it, it, it's one of the reasons that Malgova produced uh, the guidance to try and take into account these different dimensions: that of the firm. Uh, that of compliance with the FCA and regulation, uh, and that in keeping it, it simple for staff. Is, is, is that the driver behind it? Because there's certainly a lot of guidance out there about vulnerability and data protection, maybe not together, but there's a lot out there. I, I always like to answer the question, why have you done this? With, with the reply, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but we'll move on from that. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that the I think what you see with GDPR and vulnerability is two separate regulatory regimes coming together. 
you have a data protection regime and an FCA regime, both of whom will approach regulation slightly different from a slightly different perspective with a slightly different philosophy. And what I think you need to bridge the gap between that is um, some sort of guidance written in English, not legalese, something where the person at the sharp end who's actually dealing with the situation which the regulator wants to tackle will be able to turn to for practical guidance. Otherwise, what I fear you will end up with is a situation where there is a constant demand to, the, to both regulators for more and more clarity, more and more examples, more and more redrafting. And uh, the inevitable consequence of that is you never reach the end of the road. When I used to deal in trade bodies on FCA regulation, you'd come back with guidance, which you thought was crystal clear, but there seemed to be an industry out there to try and get even more detail, uh, grind the problem even into even smaller pieces. Um, and so you never reach the end of that, of that track. These guides, I think, will give people an indication of how they should approach issues and remain compliant. And it's getting that mind, that, that attitude of mind, that feeling that they're doing things for the right purpose, that will actually give practical advice to the people who are offering advice uh, and involved in this area, and will and will help avoid tying them down in legal knot and regulatory knots. Mm. And, and the guidance places a real emphasis on uh, applying three lenses, looking at the uh, the challenge of uh, handling uh, customer disclosures of vulnerability through a data lens, through a vulnerability lens, and through an operational lens to keep it practically simple and realistic yeah. all at the same time. And, 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 that's, and that's something that's it's difficult for the FCA and the ICO to do, isn't it? Because they're, they're, they can go they so have far. Statutes. Mm. They have different statutory objectives. They have to tailor what they do to those objectives. And joining the two up is always going to be a problem for them. I think the three lens approach is really helpful. Uh, I wonder which genius thought it up, Chris. Um, I, I, and we shouldn't possibly say it's Colin Trend. So kind of <laughs> anyway, it was a really good it was a really good way forward. Uh, and it's it's this bridge. It's this it's trying to be practical. That's what I like about guidance. It can be practical. Okay, let's continue that practical thing. The questions are coming in and we're getting a lot coming in and there is a common theme to them. So I'm going to turn to Rob and to Nina for this one, but Dan and Paul do come in when you, when you, when you feel you need to. Um, so here's the question that we get asked the most at the Money Advice Trust Consultancy Programme, and it is this one. A customer discloses a vulnerable situation. I'm going to turn to Rob first. Do firms need to get their explicit consent to record the data? Yes or no? It, in short, the answer is no, you, you don't actually have to get explicit consent to re record vulnerable customer data, even where that data is special category data, health data in particular. It's actually one of the biggest misconceptions about GDPR that you, you need special category, I'm sorry, you need consent to be able to record special category data. Of course, first firms must consider whether the information they're being told is actually special category data or not. And, and if not, they can just record it using um, an Article 6 basis, such as legitimate interests. But if it is special category data, such as health health data, as we, we mentioned, um, then 
firms need both an Article 6 basis for processing. As mentioned, they usually use legitimate interests uh, for this, but, but be aware uh, that this brings with it the, the right to object. And I think then we go back to uh, what we were just talking about in terms of transparency and making sure customers are aware of their uh, of their rights, uh, uh, such as the right to object at the time that they are disclosing the information, not just hidden away in a privacy notice somewhere. Um, so this right to object needs to be be told to them at the time. Um, and of course, we need that Article 9 basis, which is around the special category data. But what's really important to note is that there are several bases under Article 9 that we can use not just the um, not just consent. So while consent is one, um, we we can use and um, we will refer to um, Article Nine Two G in particular, which says that that processing can take place in the public interest, subject to the member state law and safeguards. And I know Nina will uh, address more about safeguards in a moment or two. Um, so, so that, that that extra little bit in Article 92G to say that, yes, there's consent, but there's also if the member state decides that it's in the public interest. Well, then, then it comes over to the UK to, to decide what it feels um, are, are public interest requirements. And in the Data Protection Act 2018, um, the UK lists its substantial public interest. So amongst others is the right to, to process health data where it's processed to safeguard the economic well-being of, of an individual um, so actually yes we can use consent but we can also use this economic well-being uh, basis as well which is hidden away in schedule one part two of the data protection act 2018. Thanks, Rob. Now, Nina, this is this is uh, something that you 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 paid close attention to. Um, how have Capital One uh, approached this, with particular reference to economic well-being, and what what safeguards uh, need to be put in place? Because we're getting plenty of comments. The questions have exploded with people saying, "Well, how do we uh, if we use uh, a different processing base?" And remember, it is a firm's choice. We're not advocating here not using explicit consent. We're not advocating for economic well-being. We're saying there are choices. But if if there are choices, how do we ensure that we keep transparency and fairness uh, at, at the top of the pile as well when doing this? Thanks, Chris. Um, and actually, I think this is one of the the most reasons why the guidance is so incredibly important. Um, one of my biggest fears actually is is that um, vulnerable customers personal data isn't processed because of a fear of data protection and the most extreme versions of that you see is i can't take information from a third party which might be incredibly helpful for the individual to protect them for a firm to know um, because of data protection um, and sometimes you actually hear frontline staff um, saying i can't take that because of data protection and that being a barrier. So I think the guidance is incredibly important because it addresses some of those challenges and perceptions um, and some of those challenges and perceptions about consent um, in itself. And you're right, we've looked incredibly closely at this. One of the most important things um, in my mind that firms can do is to use a process, which I'm sure many on the, 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 the webinar will uh, be familiar with, called a data protection impact assessment. 
what this does is allow you to gather the right stakeholders in the room to be able to focus on this subject. So this can't just be your legal team squirreling away looking at this as a legal issue. This is your legal team. This is your data protection team. This is your vulnerable customer specialist. This is your operational um, um, frontline agents so that you've got the right people focused on what are the risks of processing this personal data? And what are some of the steps that might be necessary to help minimize some of those risks? And what it also does is really help you focus on why you're processing the personal data and whether it really is necessary to process that personal data for your purpose and whether or not it's proportionate um, to process all the personal data that you're considering for that particular purpose. And once you've started to do that, some of the safeguards that you might um, see that come out is, OK, I'm only going to process what I need for this particular purpose. So not all health data, just in case I might need that at some point in the future. But I'm going to have some sort of framework so that I can start to understand where that data might have an impact on the customer's ability to manage their finances or where it might cause them to need some kind of support either now or in the future. Um, you then might start to think about, OK, from a transparency perspective, what are the right places looking at what we're processing, why we're processing the it, that we need to ensure that we provide a transparency? Got our privacy policy. What level of detail do we need to include in that? At the time of disclosure, do we need to be putting some sort of transparency in there? Is it a short version? Do we need to follow that up with correspondence afterwards to remind people that they have a privacy policy, we are processing that data and where they can find out that information. Um, other safeguards you might consider are choice. Um, for us, choice is incredibly important. So this is providing the ability uh, for the individual to opt out of that information recorded, being recorded. And that works in conjunction with the transparency, because if you get it right in terms of telling the individual why their data is being used, what data is being used, um, then actually they begin to trust that you have the right intent behind recording that information and then feel much more able to give that to you. And you still give them that, that um, ability to choose, but actually they may choose to allow you to continue to process that data for that purpose. Um, and then finally, other, the final safeguard, which I think is incredibly important, is challenging yourself on how long you need that information for. So vulnerabilities can be temporary in nature or they can be permanent. So think about having different time frames dependent upon the nature of that data as well. So that's just a splattering of some mm. of the safeguards that might come out. And, and Chris, for me, this is it's so important why it can't be a one size fits all. So our regulators are not able to provide a set of guidance that says, hey, 60,000 firms, this is how you um, can process vulnerable customers' personal data. It's on firms to carry out that process in their organizations with their stakeholders, knowing their customers to make sure that there's a right outcome for the vulnerable customer. That's really helpful. So that's that's contained in, 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 the, in the guidance, a fuller explanation. But I just want to kind of focus in on a couple of aspects there, uh, Nina, that, that, that you mentioned. I think the first thing is we're, we're clearly not saying um, throw explicit consent in the bin. You know, don't don't throw the baby out with the, uh, the bathwater. It's still a valid processing base for uh, health data. So this is all about choice. What, what I think we're saying here with reference to substantial public interest and to the economic well-being provision, paragraph 19 in the DPA, that section of the DPA, is if you're using this to 
process health data. It can be helpful in the situation of third parties. You mentioned that. It can also be helpful uh, in relation to uh, customers maybe of cognitive impairment where you're they're unable to uh, give consent or situations where you're unable to obtain consent and also situations. And this is where I'm going to use the word prejudice uh, for the first time probably in the whole of the uh, Vulnerability Matters podcast series where it might prejudice measures that you might put in place to protect that customer's economic well-being. Can you just just unpack that a little bit for us because that, that's absolutely key. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is quite a hard um, concept, <laughs> I think, for um, the legislation has not been helpful at all in terms of how it's been drafted, um, because what it's doing at the outset is saying you can use this additional lawful basis, um, but only where the data subject either cannot give their consent, um, they um, are, it's unreasonable to seek their consent, um, or where it may prejudice the purposes um, for which you're processing the personal data in in the first place um, and from this perspective there's you may find that it is um, to seek consent true consent um, and I think it's really important to understand what true consent is which I think the guidance does really uh, a really good job at, uh, at doing true consent means that if the individual um, says no then no means no um, and there should be you you have to not record that information but actually from a firm's perspective you might say i need to record certain information in certain circumstances because it's more important to protect the best interests of this individual and therefore um, that ability to say no me would invalidate consent um, and so obtaining consent where I might need to um, continue to process that personal data in the absence of consent would mean that it's not true consent in its first instance. And that's where this prejudiced um, trying to obtain consent may prejudice your purposes for obtaining consent comes in. Um, mm. I think firms are only able to use that where their purpose for processing is purely to protect the individual from um, harm, um, mm. so from economic risk. So you've got to be really clear on why you are processing that personal data in the first instance. If it's broader than that, and some firms it will be broader than that, then it becomes difficult to rely on this. Um, it may prejudice the purposes for which the, the the firm is processing the personal data in the first place. Mm. No, a so absolutely. A, tr a tricky one, Chris. A tricky <laughs> one, Chris. But exactly. it really does require firms to look at really carefully and work through. Uh, and it's fully explained in the guidance. Now, Rob is probably glad he's listening there that he didn't have to explain the economic well-being element. But one thing I will ask Rob about is this this safeguard. Because people may be thinking, hang on a second, that means in certain situations for, for health data, uh, we could uh, firms could record anything without the customer having a say or a choice. But Nina was talking there uh, about essentially a, a right to object if you pair uh, legitimate interests with the economic well-being condition under substantial public interest. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that right to object, uh, where it should happen and why it's so important, Rob? Absolutely, of course. And, and I'd second everything that, that, that Nina said there in terms of uh, in terms of, of the flow of information. We need to, you know, consent is is the best 
uh, option where it's available um, and where it, where we we can get it and, and from a best practice perspective consent is 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 the best way to process the data but where where you know obtaining consent would prejudice the the help then then economic well-being is particularly useful but it comes back to the transparency point of view again um, that that we can't just simply record information and remember the information that we're recording is is health data that must be necessary to protect the the, the economic well-being of the individual and we need to meet that test of, of necessary um, but it comes back to transparency so we're not just recording the data we are we are telling the customer that we are doing so and uh, giving them the right to object particularly if we're we're pairing um, the economic well-being uh, reason for processing with legitimate interests so it's a requirement under article 6 of gdpr if you're using legitimate interests to um to give customers the right to object and that should be done uh, at the time so as they are telling you the information um, and, and and ideally as part of the conversation you're having or, or immediately uh, after um but you know ideally as part of that conversation where you inform them about the right to object so some some wording along the lines of you know if you imagine if you change texas slightly uh, some wording along the lines of um, do you have any objection to us recording that information uh, that would that would that would kind of meet the the requirement there mm. and clearly the, the the firm can override that and that's the that's the, the safeguard that's been put in place from the perspective of financial services industry to record information uh, where the, the, the firm feels actually to protect that customer's economic well-being, we need to have that health data on, on file. But there is there is a, a voice for the consumer in there, Rob. Exactly that, exactly that. Yeah. So, so you know, our basis is we know we, we need to process this data to protect them. So, um, and they're not in a, in a position to give consent, um, but wherever possible, uh, informing them of their right to object and therefore they they have that voice and and if they were adamant that they didn't want us to record it then 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 so be it it's and what and in the guidance itself you, you'll see the texas model has been reworked and the key thing here just to f finish this off nina is this isn't a, a fallback for explicit consent we can't try explicit consent and then move to economic well-being we need to be very clear about how we're going to tackle this from the outset is that correct yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it, the ICO and, and the law is incredibly clear in relation to consent. Consent has to be the, if it is the lawful basis, it is, it is the only lawful basis that is used. There is no ability to fall back on another provision should consent um, not be obtained. Um, the only other thing I'll just add, Chris, which I think is really mm. important, and this is why it's, it's so important for firms to work through this, is actually the ICO have been incredibly clear that in relation to lawful basises, there is no hierarchy. And there used mm. to be a perception that consent was at the top and then everything sort of else sits b below it. They're all equal. But what firms must do is work through really carefully to work out what is the right lawful basis for the firm and the data subject, knowing all of the facts relating to, to their consumers and themselves as an organisation. So I just think that's really important to remember. Consent's not the holy grail and the um and the and, and the best lawful basis um, from a legal perspective, um, or even indeed from a data subjects perspective, um, I think transparency and choice um, are actually key to making sure that the the consumer is empowered. 
Mm, okay, so we've, we've taken a bit of time to deep uh, dive into that. Dan and Paul, you're you're listening there. Um, Dan, con consent is is no longer the the holy grail of uh, uh, dealing well, with I, disclosures. What do you think? I, I wanted to come back to something Nina said um, a few minutes ago about uh, making the very valid point that it's in, it's important to make sure you have the right people in the firm making these choices about this um and it was it was very interesting that at that point when listing those specialists at no point were vulnerable customers mentioned so i mean that that's key to me is that we see this a lot in in relation to mental health um that that experts in a field will speculate about what works and what doesn't work for a group when instead they could just involve us in the decision making process so mm -hmm. I think that's the key thing is that that we need to be in that in that room. When, so Dan, when if Dan, if you were in that if you were in that room now, and the discussion was around these uh, not using explicit consent as a, as an option, but using economic well-being, uh, allowing a right to object, but recognizing that 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 right could be uh, overridden by a firm in defined circumstances, what what would your response be? Uh, my response, first of all, would be my, underst uh, my understanding is that economic well-being is is really vaguely defined. Mm. So, so, so I'm I'm nervous about companies making processing data on that basis. And secondly, the right to object being able to be overridden means that I am much less likely to make any disclosure in the first place. So I know this is something whenever we talk, we talk about engagement. And one of the key things from a company's point of view is keeping customers, especially vulnerable customers, engaged in the discussions with them. Um, mm. And knowing that knowing that my consent might be overridden or that my objection might be overridden is something that is going to make me drop out of that engagement. Thanks. That. Nina, how how do we how should we take these? Uh... Dan's challenge there into into account. How how do we, uh, in terms of transparency and openness and fairness, um, explain that right to object process? Because I'm assuming that you only override in a very narrow set of circumstances. That's exactly right, um, Chris. And Dan, um, just to come back on your first point in terms of not um, having the consumer in the room, that's an amiss from me, from, from our vulnerable customer specialists. When I talk to, to them as a team and a concept, that's bringing in also the mind of the vulnerable customers and they will seek and um, um, seek that out and represent that. Um, so, so in my mind, the, the voice of the consumer is an incredibly important part of that stakeholder process. Um, and apologies if that didn't come across. No, that, that's, that's really helpful. But from, from our point of view, there is a massive difference between being consulted and being in the room. Yes. Um, and being represented and being in the room. We don't see it being represented as being in the room. And, and I like that challenge. I do think there's, I think there's something we can all learn from continuing to bring more stakeholders into the forum um, and bringing um, actual voices um, into the room as well. And I know that's something that our organisation will be incredibly interested to continue uh, to do. From a, um, Chris, you mentioned, how do you resolute that with uh, the fact that it feels like when it's not consent and this, uh, this ability to override in my mind, this is a 
job for firms to make sure that we are able to provide that transparency in terms of what that right to object actually means um, and that actually it is akin to the consent um, model because mm. interestingly as at today um, what happens is if that information needs to be recorded um, and consent is the lawful basis there are if it if it must be recorded firms may take a um, regulatory risk and say it is more important mm. that I record that information than I adhere to a piece of legislation and hope for and seek regulatory forbearance um, if that time came. So actually, I would suggest that the outcome, whether or not the lawful basis is consent or protection for the economic um, interest, the outcome would be the same and the firm would seek to record that information anyway and mm. either seek that regulatory forbearance or um which is interesting um because i think that the transparency that's needed to be able to give to individuals is that we're processing this personal data because we think um, we need it to be able to protect you um and, and for your best interests and i need to be able to um, work on how do we make sure we provide sufficient transparency so that you trust what I am doing with that information, which goes back to that purpose being key. If you mm. think that there um, is something untoward that I might be doing with that information because I'm not providing with you, you with sufficient transparency, then actually you're less likely to give that information um, and provide that information to me. So mm. that's, the, I think, the key um, job as, as, as an industry and, and for firms is trying to provide that transparency sufficiently so that individuals do trust in what we are doing with that personal data and why we're we're processing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for doing that guidance, just to pick up on both what Dan and Nina is saying, is to start that dialogue a little bit more uh, forcefully and, and, and quickly to ensure that vulnerable consumers' voices are heard. I just want to move us on a little bit and I hope um, Jim and Caroline and Jane and Emma who've all been putting questions in that that, that point of the part of the discussion has covered uh, some of what you were, were proposing there. I just want to move on to we've talked a lot about how do we disclose it and kind of what processing base do, do we use but what should firms be recording about vulnerability? Um, Rob what, what should be what should be uh, recorded? Yeah, so it really comes back to 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 the difference between what's what's absolutely necessary to record in order to to help the customer with their economic situation compared to what's nice to know, and and this really is quite a difficult one to be honest because I think it's a they'll have to be done on a kind of case by case basis like it is today, and that when when customers are disclosing information about conditions that they might have etc that the firm is considering okay do i actually need to know this data is it critical for me to be able to afford the protection that, that they might need um, or is it just simply nice to know and i think that that can be guided by the the um dpia data protection impact assessment i think it can be guided by that but ultimately it, it will be on a case-by-case -case basis so whether it's long-term uh, conditions uh, shorter-term conditions whether it's around the, the customer's decision-making process whether there's um, reasonable adjustments that that need to be made they're all very different factors i think that that um, that would decide the type of information that you would need to record 
Mm. And kind of, Dan, I'll turn to you in a second and Paul as well, if, if you've got a comment on this. But Nina, how do we avoid falling into that's nice to know or that might come in helpful or I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to record it anyway. How do we fall, af, avoid falling into that data recording trap? I think what you can do is is you can help by providing a bit of a framework um, for your frontline agents to these are the sorts of questions that you might want to be asking to seek to understand if this is information that you need to record. So is this information that you're telling me, does it have an impact on you? What's the effect now? Do you think this is going to impact you on the future? Do you think, does your situation make it difficult for you to speak to us? Um, has there been a financial or, or um, impact on you that means that you require some kind of support? If the answer is yes to any of those, then this is likely to be information that you need to record. If there's no impact and it's just a, a cursory piece of information that's been disclosed, then it's less likely that that will need to be recorded. And I think those sort of frameworks can really help your frontline staff to understand mm. what information they do um, they do record, because that goes back to my purpose for this is so that I can help you, so that mm. I can provide you with some level of support. If that information doesn't require that, either now or in the future, then actually that's unlikely to be information that I need um, to record. And I think that really helps. Mm. So it's about recording the, it's like the absolute minimum, of the most relevant information for our processing purpose or for, for meaningful action, really. Absolutely. Dan, what should we be recording yeah. from your perspective? Well, I, I like that because it chimes with the, the Equality Act's definition of disability, for example, which is that something, it's not just about having an impairment, it's about the impact of that impairment on um, your day-to-day -day life. So, so impact is the key word. You should be recording the things that have an actual impact, but not necessarily just an, it's not an impact that might be associated with a problem I have. It's a general impact in accessing a service. I think that that's that's key. Um, mm. So it's not just about me being in financial difficulty. It's about the potential financial difficulty that might occur if I am not able to access that service. So, for example, fraud teams will only speak to people often by telephone. That's something that has a substantial impact. I need to disclose information in order to change that. It's, it's this kind of thing. It's not just if I'm in if I'm in trouble, then you need information about my vulnerability. It's mm. impact. Impact has lots of wide contexts. It goes back to something I've heard you say many times before, and it's a what what makes somebody uh, vulnerable to a specific harm uh, isn't what they're actually vulnerable to. There's a distinction between the uh, the the cause cause and the effect. Yeah. There we go. It's kind of, Paul. It's just just yep. turning to you to you here in terms of the, the guides themselves uh, provide uh, not just um, information about processing base, but lots of examples of what Dan was talking about there in terms of support needs codes, uh, vulnerability flags um, uh, and the types of data that should be recorded. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? I want to answer a slightly different question first. I, I've, I'm used to dealing with the Today programme, so I feel I'm allowed to do this. But the um, cheek of it, The point that I want to make is you've got to come and look at the questions which you ask and keep checking that they remain relevant. Some years ago in mortgages, 
I was uh, dealing with, there was, I was told by the mortgage director of a very large financial institution that there was one question on their form which caused quite a bit of concern over privacy and, and how the information was used and, and how it was drafted. And it was getting to regulators. And he asked his team, have we ever taken a decision on the basis of the answer to that question? And after a minute of silence, it became embarrassing. And he got to the conclusion that actually this question, which was causing a fair bit of grief, was never used in anger. Mm. Um, and I think it is important when we are you are running when you're working within this sort of regulatory regime to keep checking that you, the information you're getting remains relevant and that the way in which you ask for it remains relevant. Mm. Um, on the other question about codes, I think. Um, I think there are going to be one or two areas where the logical way of helping frontline staff will be to come up with a, an agreed approach so that you don't get um, competition between people putting out different answers or even worse, um, mis misinterpretations because the way in which uh, certain things are phrased is, is open to question. And that is the sort of thing which industry bodies are good at, at broking and at coming and at getting to a point where everybody understands what is being asked. Absolutely. And in the th um, what we've got is an overview guide, which is a, a guide to the guides in many respects, and three technical guides which uh, delve into a lot of that detail in terms of uh, examples of flags, codes and other approaches that firms can adopt and, and improve, hopefully. I, I want to just pick up uh, a couple of points that have been raised uh, in, uh, in questions here that perhaps we haven't um, uh, chalked off. I've got one here from Ravinda. Rob, can I put this to you? Can we use verbal consent for the recording of personal and special category data to provide advice and guidance for undertaking casework because we're working remotely due to the current pandemic? In terms of, of consent, it can it can be given verbally uh, anyway. Um, of course, you need to then record that somewhere so that you, you've got evidence, or it's a good idea to record it somewhere so that so that you have evidence that the uh, that the consent was 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 given. Um, but but yeah, uh, pandemic aside, um, consent can be made verbally uh, just just as as well as it can in writing. Fantastic. And a question uh, question here. Uh, I, I can't see the person's name. Um, Nina, I can come to you this on this one. It's about the right to object. Um, is it enough just to put this in, uh, in, in, in a privacy notice when we're thinking about the economic well-being uh, consideration? Or should we uh, be drawing attention uh, to that right to object during the disclosure process itself at the point of disclosure? I would suggest for empowerment of consumers that you want to be having that as part of the when it's disclosed as well, as opposed to it just being in the privacy policy. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to move us on a little bit. We're, we're entering just the last moments of the uh, of, of the discussion. Um, and the, the last question I wanted to kind of ask to finish with is, um, it's prompted by all the current discussion about sharing data uh, about vulnerable customers. Um, and I want the panel, and perhaps I can start with um, Dan on this one, is to consider kind of, um, how do you see this developing over time? Dan, there's a lot of talk about the sharing of vulnerability data for consumers' benefit. Well, where is this going? Is it headed to a good place, a murky place, or we're not quite sure? It's an interesting question, and it, it goes a little bit back to what I said to, to Nina earlier. 
And it's something that in my day job, I work in academia, we're seeing as well. There's a massive data ethics movement in, in financial services and in, in academia. What we, we don't see is that these big projects and pieces of work being done on this don't have baked in requirements for vulnerable people to be on advisory boards or decision making groups or policy setting groups. Um, if we're lucky, we get organisations that will speak for us. Um, if we're really lucky, we're consulted, but not in the room. And I think for, for me, as long as that continues, the, um, the situation is only isn't, is going to get further away from our actual needs and further and further towards our perceived needs um, without necessarily understanding that those two are different. And I think that's my biggest worry in the future is that that institutions have perceptions of our needs that they believe they've met without understanding our actual needs, unless we're actually in those rooms. Mm. And that's that's really interesting, Dan, because most firms might consider, oh, we should talk to a charity to get the views of uh, people in vulnerable situations. Are, are you saying that firms should go another step? Absolutely, further? yes, they absolutely they should. And this is something I know the. Um, the UN Commission on Human Rights, for example, is very keen on that, that it's not enough to speak to charities. You can, a charities are good if they are led and governed by the people they speak for, but are not, are not a platform for the views of those people. You have to go to the people themselves. Okay. Nina and um, Rob, it's, um, where do you see this sharing of vulnerability data going do, do you take uh, Dan's concern there that actually it, it's starting from a false foundation or do you think firms need to sort out their internal data sharing first before they think about wider industry schemes Nina where do you stand on this I can see there's a clear perceived and I think Dan thank you for saying that I think there's, there's a perception of benefit in sharing vulnerable customers data both for the customer and for for firms I think there's two ways of thinking about sharing. You've got one which is at the customer's choice. Um, and what this does is build on the data portability right that is actually included within data protection legislation, little used, but, but included within legislation. Um, and this allows customers to request that their data is shared with other data controllers. Um, and that's with the aim of that, with empowering customers. And then the other's not at the customer's request. Now there's risks with both of those, but of course they're great aware the customer is not perceived as in control. Um, the risks are things like potential misuse, the perception of misuse, um, lack of transparency, loss of sensitive data. And there's ways to mitigate that, I think. Um, we can develop common standards for sharing to make sure there's appropriate technical and organizational measures. We can have appropriate transparency, common language, but it will take a hell of a lot of planning, coordination, collaboration to make sure we get that done right and also to make sure we include all of the right stakeholders um, within this. I think the first stage might be to focus on empowering customers through data portability, because that really puts customer choice at the heart of sharing of data, which I think mm. is the most important part. And there's a very good University of Bristol Personal Financial Research uh, Centre report called Sharing is Caring, written by Sharon mm. Collard and Jamie Evans, which looks at some of the ethics and putting uh, the person in a vulnerable situation or the disabled person in charge of their data. After all, it is their, their data. I just want to squeeze this one in, if, if I can. Um, at the start of the discussion, we asked you all the question, what does data protection mean when it comes to vulnerability? And you've all heard one another today. So I, I wondered, uh, let's keep with you, Nina. I wondered if you changed your mind in any way in 30 seconds. Have you seen a new light or had an epiphany or uh, are you where you started? 
um for me it's just been it's been fantastic to hear from everybody else um today and i've always said i think to ensure that we get the right outcome that all of the right stakeholders are in the room and working together dan i'm so grateful for you for calling out um the need for the individual to be in the room as well um so i'm going to take that forward that's that's fantastic been a, a, a nice one for me dan i'm going to give you the last word so i'm going to turn to rob and then paul rob 30 seconds <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think complexity is 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 still still an element, um, and I think the complexity is not necessarily understanding the data protection requirements, um, but it's making them fit with the okay. FCA world in a way that works for frontline agents. Thanks, Rob and Paul. Just very quickly, fifteen seconds on the today program. No, no epiphany, but um, I have. I'm even more sure that we did the right thing in producing this guidance, and I hope that it will be very of great practical use to those who read it. With that, we've reached the end, sadly. If you want copies of the GDPR and Vulnerability Guides at moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability resources, you can listen to more of our podcast. Dan, see us off. Two things. The first, to come back to what Rob was saying, complexity. Consent to processing is such a nebulous idea that I don't know that I can meaningfully give it. What I can give consent to is specific actions with specific pieces of data. And secondly, um, the discussion we've been having about autonomy, I think people see that as separate from GDPR and something that they have to shoehorn into GDPR. But actually, as a, as a piece of paperwork, as a piece of legislation and regulation, GDPR is, is fabulous. And I think that, that autonomy is the principle at the heart of it and that regulations and anything that comes out of it should be trying to be true to, to that principle, which I think the people who drew it up had in mind when they did so. Lovely. Dan Holloway, Nina Best, Rob Bell, Paul Smee, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you again soon.